Welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Michael Roy with highlights for October 2011. Two themes predominate this month, treatment and the interactions between genes and the environment. We'll look at a study showing that alcohol consumption is affected by the interaction of psychosocial stress and a gene involved in circadian rhythm. We'll also feature a study of late-life depression that combines structural and functional brain imaging. The articles on treatment will begin with safety considerations for T3 augmentation of antidepressants. And our original research includes a comparison of lithium and valproate for preventing suicidal behavior, trends in antipsychotic use for anxiety disorders, and a trial of cognitive behavioral therapy for depression and Parkinson's disease. We'll begin this month's highlights with our Treatment in Psychiatry review article. Lisa Rosenthal and colleagues discuss safety considerations in augmenting antidepressant treatment with triiodothyronine, or T3. They begin with the case of a homeless man with chronic severe major depression, referred to as Mr. Y. In addition to chronic severe major depression, Mr. Y also had several physical health problems, including morbid obesity, high blood pressure, and diabetes. His depression hadn't responded adequately to any of several antidepressants, and he was currently taking 450 milligrams a day of venlafaxine. His blood pressure was monitored regularly and remained high without a significant change from baseline. Because of residual anhedonia and anergia, T3 was added to Mr. Y's treatment, despite a normal level of thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH. The T3 dose began at 25 micrograms per day and was increased to 50, with a very good clinical response. Mr. Y reported that he was more active and was spending time with his family. His medications also included a beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, and metformin but through regular monitoring, it became apparent that he wasn't taking his medications on a regular basis. His blood pressure, pulse rate, and blood glucose levels were alarming, but they improved when he resumed taking his medications on schedule. His levels of TSH and free T4 were low, and his level of free T3 was normal. The importance of treatment adherence was discussed with Mr. Y, and it was decided not to switch his antidepressant or discontinue T3. His diabetes and severe obesity made second-generation antipsychotics an unattractive option, and the potential for intermittent adherence made lithium seem comparatively dangerous. So the T3 dose was lowered to 25 micrograms a day. Mr. Y's treatment adherence improved, and so did his blood pressure, despite the high dose of venlafaxine. Follow-up thyroid function testing showed normal results, and his clinical response was excellent. T3 acts in the cell nucleus, stimulating gene expression and energy metabolism in cells in every organ, and potentially enhancing neurogenesis in the CNS. It modulates transcription of genes that code for the serotonin 1A and 1B receptors. It's also possible that T3 acts directly as a neurotransmitter, or that it affects monoamine neurotransmission. Actions at noradrenergic, serotonergic, and beta-adrenergic neurons have all been demonstrated. There's good evidence that T3 helps in treating depressive states, but only limited data are available on long-term safety. Few of the randomized controlled studies of T3 included both initial and follow-up tests of thyroid function. The ones that did repeat testing showed expected changes in the thyroid axis and were largely reassuring about side effects. In one of them, sertraline plus T3 produced higher response and remission rates than sertraline plus placebo. After eight weeks, the mean TSH level fell more in responders than in non-responders, and response to treatment was significantly correlated with the change in TSH level. 
Also, the baseline T3 levels of the responders were significantly lower than those of the patients who didn't respond. In the other study with follow-up testing, paroxetine was combined with 25 or 50 micrograms of T3, or with placebo. There was no difference in efficacy, but there was a statistically significant dose-dependent increase of T3 levels, along with lowered T4. The changes in thyroid function were associated with significant side effects in a third of the patients taking 50 micrograms of T3. These included sweating, tremor, nervousness, and palpitations. Longer-term effects have also been studied. In 14 patients who received up to 150 micrograms of T3 daily, no cardiac or skeletal conditions were detected over an average of 24 months. In a study of pre- and postmenopausal women on high-dosage T4 for bipolar or major depressive disorder over one or more years, there was a non-significantly greater decline in bone density in the postmenopausal women than in the population standard. The mean TSH level was normal. In euthyroid patients, high T3 dosages carry a higher risk for hyperthyroidism. Pre-existing hypertension, tachycardia, and hyperglycemia could all potentially be worsened by hyperthyroidism. Subclinical hyperthyroidism has also been associated with long-term side effects, including reduced bone mineral density and an increased risk of osteoporosis and an increased risk of atrial arrhythmias. So when thyroid hormones are used to treat depression, Clinicians should closely monitor patients for biochemical or clinical evidence of hyperthyroidism. TSH, free T4, and free T3 should be measured before augmentation and rechecked at three months and then every six months, or at least annually. They should also be checked whenever there is a report of increased anxiety, tremor, palpitations, insomnia, or other symptoms suggesting hyperthyroidism. The goal is for the TSH level to be at least at the lower limit of the normal range, or below in the absence of hyperthyroid symptoms. The level of free T3 can be maintained at the upper limit of the normal range, based on depression severity and response to T3. Patients should also be monitored for other conditions that could be exacerbated by T3, including hypertension, tachycardia, osteopenia or osteoporosis, atrial arrhythmias, and hypoglycemia. It should be remembered that some beta blockers influence thyroid hormone metabolism and plasma levels. If the patient has a history of multiple depressive episodes or significant treatment resistance, maintenance T3 augmentation is reasonable. If there are no symptoms of hyperthyroidism and no known cardiac disease, maintenance T3 augmentation can be considered even if the TSH level is below the normal reference range, depending on clinical efficacy. In postmenopausal women, bone density should be monitored with densitometry every two years. If bone density is declining, the patient should be referred for evaluation of osteoporosis. Standard recommendations for all postmenopausal women include calcium and vitamin D supplementation. It's also advisable to periodically reevaluate the risk and benefits of T3 supplementation, focusing on depressive symptoms and cardiovascular status. From antidepressant treatment, we now turn to medication for bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is associated with a high risk for suicidal acts, and observational studies suggest a protective effect of lithium against suicidal behavior. However, testing this in randomized clinical trials is logistically and ethically challenging. Maria Akendo and colleagues studied the treatment of suicide attempters with bipolar disorder in a randomized clinical trial comparing lithium and valproate in the prevention of suicidal behavior. The authors conducted a double-blind randomized study to see whether lithium was superior to valproate in preventing suicidal events. The participants were bipolar patients in a major depressive or mixed episode who had a past suicide attempt. They were recruited through emergency department referrals 
referrals from other outpatient services, and advertisements. They were randomly assigned to lithium or valproate. The target blood levels were 0.6 to 1 milli equivalent per deciliter for lithium and 45 to 125 micrograms per milliliter for valproate. Blood levels were checked regularly and dosages were adjusted by an unblinded physician. To protect this high-risk population, open-label adjunctive treatment was allowed as indicated. The study lasted two and a half years. It was divided into three stages, acute stabilization, continuation, and maintenance. During acute stabilization, patients received the mood stabilizer plus adjunctive drug until they achieved two weeks with a score below seven on the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale and a mania score less than 10 on the change version of the Schedule for Effective Disorders and Schizophrenia. They then took their assigned study drug and the adjunctive treatment for six months, or two months in the case of a mixed episode. After the continuation phase, adjunctive antidepressants were tapered if the patient didn't meet the criteria for full or partial remission of a mood episode. If adjunctive antipsychotics had been required for acute stabilization, they were tapered two months after remission of the mixed or psychotic state. After continuation treatment, the patients entered the maintenance phase, in which the goal was to maintain them on mood stabilizers alone. Patients who developed a new episode after remission and required rescue medication received adjunctive antidepressants or antipsychotics, according to the type of episode. Patients who required hospitalization for any reason could remain in the study on double-blind medication, as long as they were hospitalized at the author's institution. The patients were interviewed at a minimum of 10 time points. Under optimal conditions, a patient would be assessed at four visits during acute treatment, one visit during the continuation phase, and six visits during maintenance treatment. Two of the primary outcome measures were time to suicide and time to suicide attempt. Since the ethical requirement to intervene when imminent risk of suicidal behavior is suspected would likely suppress the outcome of interest, an additional outcome measure was defined, suicide event. A suicide event was operationalized as a suicide attempt or an episode of suicidal ideation with a plan, such that rescue medication or hospitalization was required. Suicidal ideation with a plan was defined as the patient's acknowledgement of one or more of five planning items in the scale for suicide ideation. Nearly 100 patients were randomly assigned to the two mood stabilizers. Most were in a major depressive episode. There were no suicide deaths during the study. A total of 14 patients made suicide attempts, six taking lithium and eight taking valproate. Suicide events occurred in 16 patients in the lithium group and 19 in the valproate group. Neither the time to suicide attempt nor the time to suicide event differed significantly between the two mood stabilizers. There were also no differences in the proportion achieving remission from the index episode, time to hospitalization, or time on study medication. While this two-and-a-half-year prospective comparison of lithium and valproate treatment for bipolar disorder patients who had previously attempted suicide found no difference in subsequent suicide attempts, the high rates of attempts in both groups underscore the challenge of caring for very suicidal patients. Our next study was a large survey of naturalistic treatment. Community practice patterns suggest that antipsychotic medications are often used for diagnoses outside the FDA-approved indications. The sedative properties of antipsychotics may help to explain their broadened use in non-psychotic patients. Jonathan Comer and colleagues report on national trends in the antipsychotic treatment of psychiatric outpatients with anxiety disorders. This study surveyed office-based psychiatrists. It encompassed the years between 1996 and 2007. Data were drawn from the National Ambulatory Medical Care Survey, 
a multi-stage probability survey of visits to office-based physicians in all specialties engaged in direct patient care. The survey response rates varied from 63 to 77%. A systematic random sample of visits to each physician was drawn during a randomly selected one-week period. The sample for this analysis included more than 4,000 outpatient visits to psychiatrists in which an anxiety disorder was diagnosed. For each visit, up to six medications and three diagnoses were recorded. The authors cast a broad net in capturing FDA-approved antipsychotic indications. They considered a visit to include an approved indication if any antipsychotic was approved for the diagnosis assigned, regardless of the specific antipsychotic prescribed. Across the 12-year study, the percentage of visits for anxiety disorders that included antipsychotic prescriptions roughly doubled to more than 21%. Similar but less impressive increases were observed for antidepressants and sedative hypnotics. The percentage of visits in which only anxiety diagnoses were mentioned and antipsychotics were prescribed increased from about 4% to 8.5%. Over the study period, antipsychotic prescribing rose from 7% to more than 14% of visits for anxiety disorders in which there were no FDA indications for antipsychotic medications. Antipsychotic prescriptions also increased significantly for anxiety disorder visits in which neither antidepressants nor sedative hypnotics were prescribed. Among the common anxiety diagnoses, panic disorder showed the biggest increase. Also, antipsychotic treatment roughly doubled in office visits for generalized anxiety or traumatic stress disorders. Between 2004 and 2007, the most commonly prescribed antipsychotics in visits for anxiety disorders were quetiapine, risperidone, and olanzapine. Quetiapine was more commonly prescribed in visits for traumatic stress disorders than for any other anxiety disorder. Risperidone was also more common in traumatic stress disorders, and olanzapine was most commonly prescribed for obsessive-compulsive disorder. The reasons for the increased use of antipsychotics for patients with anxiety disorders remain unclear. Increasing severity of illnesses and greater prevalence or recognition of comorbidities are some of the possible explanations. There was an association between antipsychotic prescriptions and comorbid diagnoses, but antipsychotic prescribing roughly doubled among visits in which only anxiety disorders were diagnosed. Other contributions may be greater patient or physician emphasis on symptom reduction and increased acceptance of off-label antipsychotic prescribing. Some psychiatrists may generalize from their clinical experience in treating severely depressed patients with antipsychotics. The availability of new antipsychotics during the survey period may have further contributed to the increased use of antipsychotics. In addition, an increasing number of office-based psychiatrists are specializing in pharmacotherapy, to the exclusion of psychotherapy. Limitations in the availability of psychosocial interventions may place heavy clinical demands on the pharmacological dimensions of mental health care for anxiety disorder patients. Moreover, the role of outpatient psychiatry may have changed across time, such that office-based psychiatrists have been seeing a growing number of complicated cases. Psychotherapy was the focus of our next treatment study. Depression affects approximately half the patients with Parkinson's disease, but it's not clear whether it's due mainly to biological or psychosocial factors. Pharmacological interventions have received the most empirical attention to date, but psychotherapeutic approaches have demonstrated efficacy among the aged and in other debilitating medical conditions. Roseanne Dopkin and colleagues conducted a randomized controlled trial of cognitive behavioral therapy for depression in Parkinson's disease. The participants in this study were 80 patients with Parkinson's disease plus a diagnosis of primary major depression, dysthymia, or depression not otherwise specified. They were also at least moderately ill according to the Clinical Global Impression Severity Scale. They'd been on stable medication regimens for at least six weeks, and each had a family member or friend who was willing to participate. 
half of the patients were randomly assigned to clinical monitoring plus CBT. The other half received clinical monitoring only. All of them remained under the care of their personal physicians and continued stable medical regimens. Patients taking stable doses of antidepressant medication were allowed to continue. Slightly more than half the participants were in this category, and the randomization was stratified by this variable. The CBT lasted 10 weeks. The patients were reassessed midway through, at the end of treatment, and at a follow-up one month after the end of treatment. They were phoned at weeks 2 and 7 to assess patient safety. The CBT employed in this trial was tailored to the unique needs of the Parkinson's disease population. It placed a stronger emphasis on behavioral and anxiety management techniques than is traditionally used in CBT for depression. It also included an educational program for caregivers. The patients received 10 weekly individual sessions. These incorporated exercise, behavioral activation, thought monitoring and restructuring, relaxation training, worry control, and sleep hygiene. The caregivers received four separate individual educational sessions. These were intended to provide skills for facilitating the patient's practice of the CBT techniques they were learning. For example, the caregivers were taught to help the patients identify negative thoughts and replace them with more balanced alternatives. Most of the patients completed the study, and most of those assigned to CBT attended all 10 treatment sessions. The primary outcome variable was the reduction in score on the Hamilton Depression Rating Scale. The group receiving CBT plus clinical monitoring had significantly greater reductions than the group receiving clinical monitoring only. The CBT group also had significantly greater improvements in scores on the Beck Depression Inventory, and the effect sizes for both depression ratings were large. There were also bigger improvements in the Hamilton Anxiety Scale and the Social Functioning Scale of the Medical Outcomes Short-Form Health Survey. The CBT group also had greater improvement on the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. Motor functioning improved for the CBT group, but declined for the comparison group. The improvements in depression, anxiety, and social functioning were maintained at the one-month follow-up evaluation. Parkinson's disease symptoms were not rated at this time. The patients were also categorized as treatment responders or non-responders. The responders were rated as much or very much improved according to the Clinical Global Impression Improvement Scale, or they had a reduction of at least 50% from baseline in the Hamilton total score. At the end of treatment, the rates of response in the CBT and comparison groups were 56 and 8% respectively. At the follow-up, the rates were 51 versus 0%. The CBT group still had a mean Hamilton depression score above 13 at the end of treatment. This indicates moderate symptoms, but the Hamilton scale includes some somatic symptoms that may overlap with those in Parkinson's disease, such as psychomotor slowing and fatigue. On the other hand, the Beck depression inventory emphasizes the cognitive symptoms of depression, such as guilt and hopelessness. The mean score on the Beck scale at the end of treatment was just under 10 for the CBT group, and this indicates minimal depressive symptoms. Our next article is also about the role of neurodegeneration in psychiatric conditions. The primary model of the neurobiology of late-life depression is the vascular depression hypothesis. It's the view that vascular changes are a significant factor in the pathogenesis of late-life depression. This model has been supported by several neuroimaging studies. Another line of research over the past decade has developed models of the functional neuroanatomy of depression. However, these studies primarily included midlife patients. So Howard Eisenstein and colleagues combined structural MRI of white matter hyperintensities with functional MRI in patients with late-life depression doing a task that activates effective brain circuits. The patients had non-psychotic unipolar major depressive disorder. 
they were participants in ongoing treatment studies of late-life major depression. Most of them had their first episode of depression after age 50. They had an fMRI scan before starting antidepressant medication and another scan three to four months after starting treatment. Non-depressed elderly comparison subjects were recruited from the community and from healthy volunteers at a university research center. Individuals were excluded if they'd taken psychotropic medications during the two weeks before imaging, but other medications were acceptable, and chronic conditions such as hypertension were present in both groups. There were approximately 30 subjects in each group. The task presented during fMRI used faces and shapes. It's been used extensively to explore the neural circuitry of affective reactivity. One study observed that subjects engage in spontaneous emotional regulation when exposed to it. During the task, two kinds of faces are shown, angry and afraid. The participants are required to select the one that matches a target expression. As a control task, the participants match one of two geometric shapes with a target shape. Activation during emotion-related response was defined as the difference in brain activity between the task with emotional faces and the task with shapes. White matter hyperintensities were measured with structural MRI. The normalized volumes were similar in the depressed and non-depressed groups. The regions of interest for the functional imaging were the amygdala, the rostral cingulate, and the insula. During the faces task, the depressed patients had greater activation than the comparison group in the rostral anterior cingulate. The activity in this region was primarily in the subgenual component. This area is associated with midlife depression and has served as the target for deep brain stimulation. Limbic activation was examined in relation to high and low levels of white matter hyperintensities. Each group of subjects was split at the median into those with high and low volumes of white matter hyperintensities. There was a more robust effect of white matter changes in the depressed group than in the non-depressed group. In the depressed patients, the rostral cingulate and the insula showed significantly greater activation in the patients with high levels of white matter hyperintensities compared to those with low levels. In the healthy comparison group, there were no limbic areas where the subjects with high levels of white matter hyperintensities showed greater activation than those with low levels. Moreover, the depressed group showed a significantly greater interaction between white matter hyperintensities and limbic activation than the non-depressed group. The results are consistent with the model in which white matter damage in the elderly disrupts top-down control of limbic activity. However, Eisenstein and colleagues emphasize that their study demonstrates only cross-sectional associations, not causality. The directionality may be reversed, with depression being a risk factor for cerebrovascular changes and worsening of white matter disease. The October issue also contains several articles on the influence of gene-environment interactions on psychiatric illness. Behavioral and neuroendocrine reactions to stress in animals and humans are mediated by the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis and the extrahypothalamic brain stress system. Both systems are under circadian control and thus provide an optimal adaptive response to environmental influences. In addition, stress-induced alcohol consumption can lead to disturbances in circadian rhythmicity, which might further exacerbate the use of alcohol. The interaction of the stress response system and the circadian system and their relevance to alcohol use have been documented in terms of behavior and neuroendocrinology, but the underlying integrative mechanisms aren't well established. Li Dong and colleagues report effects of a circadian rhythm gene called period one on stress-induced alcohol drinking. They demonstrated this relationship in both mice and human subjects. The molecular basis of circadian rhythmicity involves a loop with transcriptional repressors and activators. The period 1 protein is a repressor. 
the feedback cycle drives the rhythmic expression of several clock-controlled and clock-modulated genes. These in turn mediate circadian rhythms in behavior and physiology. Clock genes also participate in reciprocal regulatory feedback, so the circadian clock is responsive to the internal environment of the body. The gene coding for the period 1 protein is called PER1. There's evidence that it's a target gene for glucocorticoids in mice and humans. It also appears to be affected by stress-induced transcriptional activation in cells that express corticotropin releasing factor. Dong and colleagues hypothesized that PER1 might be involved in the integration of stress responses and circadian rhythmicity, and that it might be relevant to alcohol drinking. First, they studied mice with a mutation of the gene. These mice have no circadian rhythms and locomotor activity, nor do they have clock or clock-controlled gene expression. Stable alcohol intake was established, and then the effects of three stressors were examined in separate tests. The three stressors were swimming, an unexpected foot shock, and social defeat by an aggressive mouse. Both the mice with and without the PER1 mutation showed significantly higher alcohol intake after each type of stress. However, the increase was greater in the mice with the mutation. And the difference was the most pronounced after the stress of social defeat, which models psychosocial adversity. Blood levels of corticosterone following stress were similar in both groups of mice, which ruled out the possibility that the increase in alcohol intake was induced by corticosterone. This relationship was also examined in adolescents who were part of a study on the outcome of early risk factors. The 18-year assessment included nearly 300 adolescent boys and girls for whom genetic data were available. They were interviewed by telephone regarding their current drinking behavior. Two variables were derived, the average amount of alcohol consumed per drinking day and the frequency of heavy drinking per month. Heavy drinking was defined as five drinks in a row for boys and four in a row for girls, and a drink was defined as 8 to 12 grams of alcohol. Data on psychosocial adversity were derived from a standardized parent interview when the offspring were three months old. Single nucleotide polymorphisms, or SNPs, of the PER1 gene were tested for their association with alcohol drinking in the adolescents. The initial analyses led to a focus on a promoter SNP, RS3027172. Its genotype had an effect on the frequency of heavy drinking and on the average amount of alcohol consumed. The rating of psychosocial adversity also had a significant effect on these drinking measures. Moreover, the interaction between genotype and psychosocial adversity had a significant influence on the frequency of heavy drinking, but not regular drinking. Another study was conducted to examine whether PER1 has a more general relevance for alcohol dependence in adults. This analysis included more than 1,000 adults with alcohol dependence and another group of comparison subjects. It didn't assess psychosocial adversity, but did test the genotype for the alcohol-related SNP. The findings showed that the minor C allele was significantly associated with alcohol dependence in these adults. In vitro experiments were used to explore the molecular basis of the transcriptional activation in the TT genotype without the risk allele. There have been reports that glucocorticoids induce expression of PER1, and so the effect on expression of messenger RNA for PER1 was tested. Lymphocytes from patients were used to establish cell lines specific for each genotype of the alcohol-related SNP. Following incubation with cortisol, PER1 mRNA was increased fourfold in cell lines carrying the TT genotype, whereas no cortisol-induced stimulation and expression was observed in cells carrying the CC genotype. This genotype-specific transcriptional activation by cortisol appeared to be mediated in part by the SNAIL-1 transcription factor. This protein is expressed in brain regions relevant to stress-induced drinking, such as the prefrontal cortex, nucleus accumbens, and amygdala. Several other articles in the October issue are about genetics, or gene-environment interactions, 
In their editorial, Linda Brustowitz and Robert Friedman discuss how research is digging more deeply for genetic effects in psychiatric illness. Extensive epidemiological evidence supports the heritability of many psychiatric illnesses, but there's controversy over the reliability of the major genetic findings. Study designs that focus on identifying a single gene causing a disease are successful for rare illnesses, like muscular dystrophy, but they've long been abandoned in psychiatry. Most common illnesses, including psychiatric disorders, aren't determined by a single gene variant. Instead, they occur because of complex interaction between multiple genes and environmental factors. Two different approaches can help with this complexity. One approach is to increase the complexity of the disease models to better match the likely reality. This is the method used in studies that explicitly model gene environment or gene-gene interactions. While conceptually straightforward, modeling this additional complexity can require larger samples to maintain adequate power. The second approach is to switch from the study of clinical illness to related traits that may be controlled by simpler genetics. A caveat here is that the genetics of these alternative traits actually may be as complex as standard clinical entities. However, if a trait that's more directly controlled by a specific gene variant is identified, it can be more powerful for genetic studies. A landmark study by Afshalom Caspi and colleagues demonstrated that environmental factors could modulate the effect of a single genetic variant on the onset of depression. Individuals have two copies of the gene for the serotonin transporter, one on each of their maternally and paternally inherited chromosomes. Each copy can contain partially different DNA sequences in the serotonin transporter-linked polymorphic region, or 5-HTT-LPR. The different sequences are classified as long or short variants because of their different lengths. The short variant produces less mRNA for the serotonin transporter, the protein that recycles serotonin into nerve terminals. The study was part of a lifelong examination of 1,000 individuals from a representative birth cohort who were 26 years old at the time of the study. Stressful events were identified as unemployment, health problems, or similar losses in the past five years. Stressful events increased the nuance of major depression only in individuals who had at least one short variant. They had no effect in individuals who had two copies of the long variant. Although there was no independent effect of the genetic variant, its effects became manifest when stressful events occurred. This suggested a gene-by-environment interaction. Dozens of studies have now examined the same genetic variant in a variety of populations. It's been argued that in the aggregate, the findings don't support the hypothesis that variants in the serotonin transporter-linked polymorphic region have significant interaction with stressful events to produce depression. Most of these studies have positive findings, but they frequently involve other genes or alternative definitions of what's stressful. Some have even used different outcomes, like post-traumatic stress disorder. None of this is surprising. What's stressful differs across populations. Death of a parent or sibling is certainly a universal trauma, but the paradigm has been applied to other types of trauma as well, such as damage from a hurricane or terrorist attack. Nor is it surprising that variants in multiple genes should be involved in these interactions. Human behavior isn't determined by one gene. However, the failures of replication still are cause for concern. The null hypothesis is not that genes and environment don't interact to produce psychiatric illness. Rather, it's that too many genetic variants and environmental factors interact, to the point that they can't be easily disentangled and identified by methods currently in use. A conundrum raised in many studies is the necessity of selecting a single gene, a single stressful factor, and a single brain structure or function to examine in detail. Genome-wide association studies rarely identify one of these candidate genes as a major site of heritability. More frequently, 
these studies appear to identify novel regions of chromosomes that may or may not contain genes with known function. An equally serious issue is that no strategy currently exists to re-aggregate the bits of information from the various studies into a coherent view of the pathophysiology of illness. Nonetheless, the information that's gained may have clinical payoff before a complete solution to the problem of how illness occurs is reached. The variant in the serotonin transporter-linked polymorphic region, the effects of which seem so ephemeral, is in fact part of the gene that produces the serotonin transporter, which is the target of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and an effective treatment for depression. If a gene whose effect is so weak that it's seen in only a minority of studies can be an effective target for treatment, then there seems to be good reason to continue to dig deeply, to identify more such targets, and to understand how their biological effects contribute to human illness. This concludes our audio highlights of the October issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Please visit our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org, for the complete versions of these and other articles, including author affiliations and financial disclosures. We also welcome comments. They can be emailed to Jane Weaver. Her email address is jweaver at psych.org. Next month, we'll highlight a case of successful clozapine rechallenge after eosinophilia, unipolar and bipolar mood episodes in a large sample during pregnancy and the postpartum period, diagnostic stability of psychotic disorders, the effects of age and stimulant medication on gray matter volume in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, the relationships of inattention and hyperactivity in ADHD to high school graduation, and the costs and outcomes of a medical management intervention for persons with serious mental disorders. We hope you'll join us. Thank you.